Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And we're talking celebrities and icons on this week's show. Our featured guest is Peter James Bowman, talking about his book, The First Celebrities, Five Regency Portraits. And our other two guests come fresh from appearances at the Cambridge Festival. Matalinda Nabagodi talks about her forthcoming book, The Trembling Hand, and the link between the romantic poets and the slave trade. And Sean Campbell chats about the connection between Irish musicians and the Northern Ireland conflict, as explored in his book, Irish Blood, English Heart. Well, uh, James, we call you James. It's Peter James on the book, but we're calling you James because you say that's what you're known as. Welcome to Bookmark. We'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. Well, thank you very much for having me. And your books, as we'll hear, they're all historical, but you actually studied languages at Oxford. Yes, I studied um, French and German, and then I did a PhD at Cambridge in German literary history. And from that, I moved across to uh, to history through having studied German travel writing about Britain in the 19th century. And that led me to British 19th century history, and I, I stayed with history after that. And a particular focus on the Regency period. Why that period? One of the people that I studied or looked at when I was doing my PhD who wrote a travel account of Britain was called Prince Pukla Musco, and I wrote my first book about him. His visit to Britain was in the 1820s, so reading his book about Britain and then reading around the subject, reading about the people he met and the places he went to, led me to just fall in love with that period, and I stuck with it ever since. And by Regency period, what period of time are we talking? Well, there's the political Regency, which is the time when the Prince of Wales acted as regent for his father, George III, when he was mentally ill at the end of his life. And that only lasts from 1811 to 1820. But when people talk about the Regency, they tend to be referring to what's known as the Cultural Regency, which is a longer period, which is associated with certain forms of dress, uh, certain sorts of literature, certain political ideas and so on. And that can be 1800 to 1830. Some people would take it back as far as 1788, which is the first time George III went mad. And some people would take it as far forward as 1837, when Queen Victoria came to the throne, which is the start of the next block of history, if you like, which is the Victorian period. But the period in the book that we're chatting about, Five Regency Portraits, what period are you defining it as in that book? The 1790s and the first three decades of the 19th century. Thank you, James. Well, we're very much looking forward to talking to you about that book, which I very much enjoyed. But we'll hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you? Yes, it is. I do listen to music a lot. I don't consider myself an expert in any particular type of music, and I listen to different sorts. But I mainly like classical music, and I especially like opera. So that's why I've made the three choices that I have. And this is an extract from Don Giovanni by Mozart. Why this? I, I chose this really because of the fact that it was 
the favourite part of Henrietta Zontag, who visited London in 1828 and made a big sensation, and the hero of the first book I wrote about, which I, um, whom I've just mentioned to you, Prince Buklamusko, he fell in love with her. And so I, I read a lot about him and I read a lot about her. It just stuck in my mind that she sang this role all the time. And it just, you know, listening to it would make me think of him watching her singing it in the opera house. And that was from Don Giovanni by Mozart, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Peter James Bowman. James is a writer and translator. His first book, The Fortune Hunter, A German Prince in Regency England, came out in 2014. The Real Persuasion, portrait of a real-life Jane Austen heroine, was published in 2017. And this year has seen the release of his third book, the first celebrities, five Regency portraits, which, as I say, I enjoyed uh, very much and struck throughout, actually, by the similarities between the culture of now in terms of celebrity and then. But we'll we'll come on to that. So you established uh, what we mean by the Regency period for this book. But I suppose the next question is, how are you defining celebrity? To do that, I read a lot of academic books because there's been a lot of study of celebrity and tried to get to grips with uh, with the subject and it seemed to me that the best way of describing celebrity is by contrasting it with fame or real fame something more permanent and something which is more in the control of, of the famous person the, the thing that's specific about celebrity is that there are three different agencies as the word is three different controlling forces, the the celebrity himself or herself, the celebrity industry, that's the managers and the agents and the photographers and the journalists and the hairdressers and everybody who has an interest in the celebrity doing well and in managing the image of the celebrity. And then there's the audience, the fans and the other people who are interested in in the celebrity. And unlike with fame, the audience actually has a constitutive role in the celebrity's life, in the celebrity's story, because the celebrity tries to adapt to what the audience want the celebrity to be. And the the audience has certain expectations which, which influence the celebrity. And so you have these three different moving parts. Nobody is in overall control. So it's a phenomenon that nobody actually controls. And so it's quite fluid and quite unpredictable. And in that way, it's it's something which is different from the traditional model of fame of great leaders or geniuses or, or or military commanders and so forth. Yes, you say in the book, what is peculiar to celebrity is that the active participation of the crowd is required for it to exist at any given moment. So it's telling us as much about the time and the public, if you like, and society's opinion, as it is about the individual themselves. It is. I mean, obviously, it's much more immediate now than it was in the late 18th and early 19th century. That's the period where you first start seeing people hankering after celebrity, positioning themselves as celebrities, and then the audience having a role in forming what they do next. I mean, Lord Byron is a classical example of that, trying to live up to an image and then please his audience. And then the celebrity industry coming to to form itself and, and, and having an interest in the celebrities. Uh, success and in evolving the story of the celebrity. Obviously, 
in later periods with the development of photography and then film and then the internet, things became much more immediate, much more fast moving, and the influence of the audience was was felt or came to be felt much more immediately. But the same the same basic operation can be can be seen across the last two hundred or two hundred and fifty years. And it's a real lesson because I think a lot of us think of celebrity as a relatively recent thing. But these were people, the people that you've chosen, who were very aware of their status. In fact, the word itself, I hadn't realised, was in Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of 1751. It's, it's a strange thing talking about general concepts like this in history, because often the people who first show a particular trend wouldn't have had that word to describe the trend themselves. I mean, the first feminists didn't have the word feminist to describe themselves with. Uh, and it's the same with a lot of a lot of things. And so when we look back on history, even the way we periodize history, just talking about the Regency period as you were and the Victorian period, the people who lived at that time didn't think of themselves as living in the Regency or the Victorian period or the Tudor period or anything like that. They just saw things in a more fluid way. We look at history and we slap labels on things and also on movements like socialism or whatever it might be that makes sense to us. It's a curious way of, of defining the past. But certainly I think people at that time in the late 18th, early 19th century were aware that a new type of renown, a new type of public visibility was, was coming into being that was different from fame. And you've chosen five people in particular to look at. Why did you choose these five? Oh, there were so many people I could have chosen. I've, I've got a list of about a dozen other people that I might have looked at. But I suppose it was just that these people particularly appealed to me. I wanted a variety of different uh, fields of endeavour as well. So I've got, I've got an actress, I've got a diplomat, a politician, a painter and a novelist. I wanted a, ver a variety of, of different fields anyway, and that's what I think I've, I've done. These people would not be household names now, but at the time they very much were. Yes, they were. I mean, some of a few of the more prominent celebrities that we would probably still know of now, even if we weren't experts on the period, like, for example, Lord Byron and Beau Brummel and the actress Sarah Siddons. I, I look out in the long introduction to the book, but I wanted in the, in the biographical chapters, where I go into more detail about people, to introduce characters who wouldn't be so well known now, just so that the book added something apart from a discussion of celebrity. It, it brought people to know some historical figures that they wouldn't have come across before. And I suppose an element of celebrity <coughs> now that we think of is image manipulation. Was that taking place amongst those people that you've talked about? Yes, it was. Of course, there weren't as many forms of media as there are now. It was all mainly in the newspapers. But it seems clear that people had an awareness of their public image and they tried to plant new stories about themselves in the newspapers. The newspapers had runners, people who went about looking for information and people could contact these runners and give them a positive story about themselves and with a payment ensure that it appeared in the newspapers. And likewise, people who wanted to denigrate somebody else could make sure that something bad about that person appeared in the newspaper. So there was a, a battle for people's image going on in the public press all the time. And there was a free press, and it was a, a pretty boisterous free press. There weren't that many 
restrictions in terms of good taste or fear of libel laws or anything like that. It was a real rough and tumble aspect of the press. And people really did try to promote themselves. And they wanted, first of all, to be talked about and secondly, to be talked about in a positive way. And we're going to hear from Matalinda Nabogodi in a moment, talking about, amongst other things, Byron. Byron, obviously, his name has lasted, as has his celebrity, not just his writing. Was he the most famous celebrity of the age you're talking about? He was either the most famous or one of the most famous, yes. He's an interesting case because he realised as a writer that he couldn't just succeed because he wrote good books, good volumes of poetry in his case. He needed to have a public image as a man, as a writer. And so what he did was he modelled his heroes, the heroes of his poems, on himself. And then he started aping the heroes in his own personal life. So his heroes were sort of more glamorous versions of himself, more daring, more world-weary, more questioning of moral norms, more fascinating, and so on. And then he started imitating his heroes and so you get this 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 mutual interaction between the fictional character and the real man then of course that got out of control for him and he couldn't keep up this image anymore and he also started to find it exhausting and got fed up with it and his readers want, kept wanting more of the same more poems with these brooding dark disaffected central protagonists and he wanted to start writing different things and he wanted to escape in his own life from this Byronic persona and he started to find it more and more of a trap and that's a classic celebrity dilemma which he exemplifies quite clearly and then eventually he he did something which the people who had admired him for his slightly unconventional behaviour found too unconventional which was the scandal of his marriage and uh, his wife's accusations that he was having an affair with his half-sister and so on and so people turned against him as they often do with celebrities and there's a sort of mass denigration of the celebrity and everybody's disgusted with them and he had to he had to go abroad and he went to live abroad his story is quite a colourful and full example of a, of a celebrity life Thank you for that, James. We'll come back to that point about the circular nature of celebrity in just a moment. But let's hear from Matalinda Nabagodi first. Matalinda is a research associate in the Literary and Artistic Archive at the Fitzwilliam Museum. She's currently working on The Trembling Hand, Reflections of a Black Woman in the Romantic Archive. The book will be published by Hamish Hamilton next year after the publisher won a nine-way auction for the rights. Dr. Nabagodi recently spoke at the Cambridge Festival on Romanticism and the Black Atlantic, the link between the Romantic poets and the slave trade. And when I spoke to her, I asked Matalinda what period she was referring to when she talked of the Romantics. So quite often we think about it beginning with the French Revolution, and so 1789, and ending at some point around the 1830s, particularly with the passage of the Great Reform Act. And the reason we think about it like that is because the French Revolution was based on the rights of man and a new democratic notion of politics. And romanticism is very much about that feeling of um, everyone's right to determine how to be governed. And in Britain, the passage of the Great Reform Act of 1832 widened the franchise. So it was a way in which Britain became more democratic. And what's the fascination of the poets for you? Because you've, you've written a lot about them. What is it about them that fascinates you? On one hand, it's so distant from us, and they live in a wholly different world, just thinking about everyday life, so sort of, you know, no cars, no computers, no phones, no internet. 
and yet their writings can really resonate on a very personal level. So I'm interested in that, which makes them feel so present, even though they're written in a very different context. And they are still relevant today? I would say so, yes. Because I think some of the ideas they're grappling with, including about freedom and how to live, I think there are still questions we're asking ourselves today. The forthcoming book, The Trembling Hand, you're looking at objects which belong to some of these poets. How is that? So that feels quite crazy because these things are not very old, but then they're also like you're holding something that they held. So this object have traveled 200 years through time, sort of from their hand to your hand. So that is quite you know, astonishing for me and I still can't get over it. And where did you find these objects? In archives, in libraries. And that's interesting in its own right, the fact that people thought it was valuable to preserve papers, but not only papers, but also private items, portraits or little knickknacks or cutlery. There's Shelley's baby rattle. I always talk about that, which is a baby rattle made for him when he was born. When you work in a library and you work with manuscripts, you're really interested in the text. But I became interested in the object itself, so everything apart from the text almost. And thinking about that as really having an insight into their everyday life. As you say, astonishing that it it survived. Mm. Had he kept it? No, not so much. I think mostly it is people who are around him that keep it. So in the case of Shelley, it's more because when he dies than his wife, Mary Shelley, author Frankenstein, very much kept his things as a way of trying to maintain his presence. And what do they tell you? What I'm doing now is trying to situate the object in the world in a different way um, than I'm usually thinking about their works. So the object I always use as an example is words for his teacup. It's a cup, he drank from it, so there's something special about thinking that his lips touched this object, and of course the poetry comes from the lips, kind of um, declamation and so on. But the fact that it matters to have a teacup in an English household is already a sign of a global market for food production. So you have tea from Asia, you have coffee from the Caribbean, you have sugar from the Caribbean. So there's something about how that object allows us to bridge the poet's everyday habits on a global food production chain. Lots of these iconic poets, uh, you know, are still with us, still studied, are still relevant, as you say. But can we see them outside of the context of the slave trade? Or must we see them within that context? For the longest time, we have seen them outside of that context. And part of my work is more to remind us that that also happened at the same time. I mentioned how romanticism has a lot to do with things, with political ideas about freedom. And also imaginative freedom as well, so it's not only political freedom. So you have romantic poetry that deals with liberty to a really great extent, but that was historically never read in the context of slavery. So slavery is used as a metaphor, so like if you can't govern your instincts, you're a slave to your passions. But it wasn't seen as an actual existing condition for people in the world. Is it referenced directly in any of their work? It is, but it's much more referenced in a more abstract and allegorical way. As I'm thinking about Mansfield Park, mm-hmm. where there is that argument that everything unfortunate that happens comes from the fact that one of the characters is involved in the slave trade. Is there any kind of illusions like that within the, the writing of these poets? Well, Mansfield Park is a really good example because that famous scene is when Fanny Price was the heroine asks Mr. Bertram, I think his name is, who owns a plantation and has been away at this plantation, and she asks him about his experience in the Caribbean. And then this awkward silence descends on the room. And then the conversation moves on. And so it's seen in the criticism as a moment where sort of slavery is mentioned, but then immediately silenced. And I think you have that dynamic in a lot of the poetry as well. So it's kind of a memory present there between the lines, but it's also very easy to close your eyes to it. It's a, a kind of willful... Ignoring, do you think, rather than a yeah. self-censorship? I think it's there between the lines, 
and people pick up on it at the time, but that those references have been lost since. Why do you think it's been ignored in modern literary criticism? I think because we don't want to think about it. And I think there's a way in which when we think about history of slavery, we think always about abolition. So there's been so much focus on people like Wilberforce or Clarkson, who are really prominent abolitionists. So we don't really foreground the fact that slavery exists for a long time, that people supported it for a long time, and that it affected people's everyday lives in a way that people were aware of. Like they knew that sugar came from slave plantations and still they sweetened their tea with it. We might think of it as being immoral, so therefore we look away from it. And you've been working to kind of raise awareness of this, so what kind of reaction have you had when you've brought the slave trade mm-hmm. into analysis of the romantic poets? I think many people want to find a kind of anti-racist and abolitionist commitment in the romantics. You almost want to discover that your favourite poet was also having ideas about race that you can subscribe to. And what has surprised me a lot is that people can be abolitionists, so thinking about in the period, people can be abolitionists against slavery, but they're not really anti-racist. So they might still think that Africans are inferior, but for that reason we should enslave them, we should actually civilise them, so we should colonise Africa instead. I think that's a very common argument. I tried to stay away from saying that someone was, you know, kind of accusing someone of being a racist. I don't think that's very valuable, but I think it's important to think about the extent to which they were aware of and engaged with these questions to just get, gain a fuller picture of the past. And your forthcoming book, there has been a nine-way auction for it. Very exciting. How does that yeah. feel? Quite overwhelming. <laughs> Actually, I think the expectations are on for it to be a good book. <laughs> but it also, I suppose, shows that there's a real, to put it bluntly, a gap in the market for a work like this that nobody else has covered it. Yeah, I suppose so. So no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> And The Trembling Hand, Reflections of a Black Woman in the Romantic Archive by Matalindu Nabagodi will be published by Hamish Hamilton next year. And you can find out more about the Cambridge Festival at festival.cam.ac.uk. We're talking on Bookmark today to Peter James Bowman about his book, The First Celebrities, Five Regency Portraits. James, you alluded to it earlier, but uh, you say in the book, the cycle of creation, celebration and degradation of the celebrity by the audience, first seen in full with Byron, became commonplace after him. And I was struck by that, reading these portraits, the highs and lows. And we see it still today, don't we, with people built up and then brought down. What is what is that about? Is that some sort of self-destructing the person or is this the public wanting their pound of flesh, as it were, or the media getting bored. Can you pinpoint it? I think it's probably all three of those things. Certainly there are celebrities who want to escape from their celebrity persona and will do almost anything to get away from it because, of course, it eats into their private space and they can become alienated from themselves because their public image and their private self start diverging but they have to try and keep them together. There has to be some of the real person in the celebrity image, otherwise it doesn't work. And the challenges of keeping that show on the road and the problems it poses psychologically to the person who starts to wonder who they are can be quite severe, so some of them try to escape from it. But I think the most interesting of the three aspects you mentioned is the role of the audience, because one thing that people think is maybe quite positive about celebrity culture is this control that the audience has because it can empower people and make them feel that they have a role in forming the celebrity 
narrative. But of course, it can get a bit out of control and it can get a bit nasty, where the feeling of having a role and having an influence on the celebrity ends up becoming a sort of slightly destructive love of power. And if the celebrity doesn't meet the expectations of the audience, the audience can turn on the celebrity. And of course, they do so en masse. So the celebrity comes to feel that everybody hates them. It's something that happens quite quickly. It's something that certainly has a dark undertone, I would say. And it's one of the more dubious aspects of, of celebrity culture. And it's fed by the media, of course, because the media itself profits from celebrity culture and talking about celebrities. They want to keep changing the story from good to bad. They want there to be twists and turns in the story. And because there's a particular appeal in talking about things like greed and, and carnality and deception, they focus especially on those aspects and a negative story is a particularly effective one and people then pick up on that and decide that they don't like the celebrity at all anymore. Sometimes there can be a sort of a story of sin and redemption where the celebrity does something wrong and then is forgiven if they show the right level of contrition and they say that they've, you know, that they didn't understand how they could have done such a terrible thing and that wasn't me, as people sometimes say. But if, if they go too far... If they do something which is considered to be too bad, which is the case with Lord Byron, then there's no way back and the celebrity is, is, is destroyed, really. And how hard was it for you in terms of research, as you talked about that projection of a certain image, how hard was it for you to cut below that and find out what was really going on when the papers and the media and the court circulars were saying one thing? I think with the research I did, I was able to compare the private person with the public person. I got to the private person by all the traditional means of research, reading letters and diaries, published and unpublished. But I was then able to contrast that with the public image, which I could track by looking at newspapers. And the fact that there are digital archives of newspapers now, where you can use search terms to follow a particular story or phenomenon or person, means that you can put together a biography of somebody's public image and then compare that with the biography of the private person which you've been able to assemble using all the well-known and long-standing means of research and then you can compare the two. You can see what the difference is. You can see what the private person was going through from their letters and diaries and what have you and you can see how they explain particular forms of their behaviour and how they want to be seen, how, how they want to project themselves how they want their friends and, and family to see them, how they want the general public to see them. And then, of course, you have this much less sympathetic, often, story of, of their life in the public eye. And did you have a, a favourite of the five? I suppose I chose people that I liked in general, apart from the Duke of Buckingham, who isn't very likeable but he's a sort of interesting, larger-than-life figure. I suppose my favourite would probably be the first the first celebrity of the five, uh, the Duchess of St Albans, Harriet Mellon, as she was before her first marriage, and she was an actress. She just came across as a very warm-hearted, nice person, and, and the faults that she had, uh, which were wanting to promote herself and put stories in the newspapers about all her charitable giving and all the wonderful parties she gave, her faults were so obvious and quite childlike in a way that 
it was hard to really think badly of her for them and her good qualities. She was a, a kind and, and friendly woman, a good employer, somebody who obviously captivated people and spread happiness to people, which is what she wanted to do, were very attractive to me. Thank you, James. Well, let's take a break now for your second choice of music, which is the overture from the Weber opera Oberon. Why this one? This opera was actually first performed in London, unusually for an opera at that time. So Weber himself came over. He was one of the leading German romantic composers and his most famous opera is Der Freischutz, which is still very often performed today. And he came over and he was already an ill man and he was in great financial difficulties as well and he died very soon after this first performance and so that makes it quite poignant and the the overture is the best known part of the piece and it's it's his probably his best overture it's still very often performed today Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Peter James Bowman about his book, The First Celebrities, Five Regency Portraits. James to say five portraits, they're five quite different people you chose to focus on did they have things in common though i suppose they all had a desire to project themselves positively they all knew that people were looking at them and they wanted to be seen in a certain way sometimes for themselves in the case of the duchess of st albans whom i've just mentioned and sometimes because they had a particular end in view and that would be the case with dorothy Aleve and the the russian ambassador's wife but they all had to manage a public image, which was something that was still relatively new at the time and people were still trying different ways of doing it. There weren't established modes of doing it that everybody understood. So there was a lot of testing of the waters, but they all they all knew that they were being looked at. They all knew that there were things that could go wrong, bad things that people could say about them. They all had weak points that they knew about and they all tried to project themselves as well as they could. And did their celebrity make them happy, do you think? It may have done for a while. I think in the case of one of the other celebrities that I talk about that we haven't mentioned yet, Lady Charlotte Berry, it made her very happy while she was young, while she was a leader of fashion and a noted beauty. She enjoyed being in the public eye then. As time went by and she made mistakes in her life and her celebrity waned, the fact that she had been famous made her more unhappy than she would have been if she'd never been renowned in the first place. And she actually reflected on that herself and said that she she wished she'd done something to achieve permanent fame rather than being a society beauty and then a writer of trashy novels. Because she was a very intelligent woman and maybe she could have done something more enduring. And she did herself reflect with sadness on the fact that she hadn't done anything of permanent value and she actually said that, you know, perhaps it would have been better never to have been known at all and just be appreciated by a private circle and her family than to have had a level of visibility and a public image which then faded. And because that visibility 
did bring with it a vulnerability as well, didn't it? I mean, it's not Twitter or social media where the taunts came, but there were some pretty mean things and pretty mean caricatures of almost all of the five people that you pick out. Yes, there were. I mean, as, as, as I said earlier, there was a very crude and aggressive media culture in the way that individuals were talked about, or at least very unrestrained. And alongside the newspapers, it's worth mentioning the satirical prints, the caricatures. This was the great age of the caricature, the age of Gilray and Rowlandson and Heath and so on. And a lot of these caricatures were very gross and very insulting. The Duke of Buckingham suffered greatly in that way. Going back to Lady Charlotte Berry, she made the mistake of being just a little bit too controversial in one of her publications. She published a, a diary that she'd kept while she was a courtier, a lady-in-waiting at the court, which was full of indiscretions. And people decided collectively that she'd just gone too far. And so she was ostracized and, and spoken about in a very negative way. And you have to have a pretty thick skin to, to be on the receiving end of that sort of condemnation, which she didn't have. So it was it was very difficult. And something like that, that you just described there, I mean, you can't help but reflect back on the similarities with, say, the position of somebody like Prince Harry today, who's written a memoir and, and suffered scorn for that. Are there many resonances, do you think, between then and now? Is there anything, I suppose, that we, we can learn for today from what happened in the Regency period regarding celebrity? The thing that is a common thread is this difficulty of treading exactly the right line. And as I've said before, it's not just the celebrity individual who's in charge of the celebrity story, it's also the audience and the, ce and the celebrity industry. But the, the individual celebrity and the celebrity industry, which both have an interest in making the celebrity story a positive one and making the celebrity last for as long as possible and be as well liked as possible, they have to choose all the time how to pitch things. And you can't just keep things the same. It's like with branding, you know, branding goods. You can't just brand the goods in exactly the same way for decades. There have got to be renewals, there have got to be changes which keep the core value, which keep the core idea, but offer something new and interesting, a new way of looking at it. And it's like that with a celebrity image. The celebrity and the celebrity industry constantly have to provide something new. And sometimes it has to be a bit controversial so that it's attention-seeking or that it's, so that it gains attention. Sometimes it has to be something which is unexpected. The celebrity might come out with an opinion or do something which people might think is a little bit different from what they would normally do, something which challenges norms, just to keep the celebrity interesting. But you can't go too far with it. Otherwise, people will turn against you. If you can make some people turn a bit against you, but most people still back you, that's positive because then you're being talked about. And some people are saying, oh, I agree with him or her for saying that. And others will say, I disagree, that's wrong. And then you've got a conversation going, which is exactly what you want. You have to do things which will make people talk. You can't just do bland things. But if you do something which offends too many people, then you can be in very deep water. And looking at what happened to those in the Regency period and where we are today, does it give you any inclination of where the whole cult of celebrity might be going? I think it will become more diverse. There will probably be more celebrities who are specific to one type of audience rather than celebrities that everybody knows about, as was the case in the Regency. There's probably more separation of areas. And of course, it becomes more and more immediate all the time. 
with social media especially, but other things as well, the changes in the, in the, in the celebrity story, the, the reactions, it all happens so fast. The development of the celebrity story just unfolds in a completely different way. Thank you, James. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's move now from the Regency period to the 1970s and hear from Sean Campbell. Sean is Associate Professor of Media and Culture at Anglia Ruskin University. His book, Irish Blood, English Heart, Second Generation Irish Musicians in England, was named Music Book of the Year by the Sunday Times and Hot Press magazine and adapted into a six-part documentary series for Irish television. He spoke recently at the Cambridge Festival on popular music in the Northern Ireland conflict. And when I met Sean, I started by asking him when he first had the idea for the book, Irish Blood, English Heart. In a way, I'd probably been thinking about that book for most of my life, actually. So that was a book that explored the role of Irish ethnicity in the lives and work of musicians of Irish descent. But rather than looking at traditional or folk musicians, it looked at popular musicians. So people like... Morrissey and Marr of the Smiths, Shane McGowan in the Pogues, Kevin Rowland in Dexes. And I used their music as a way of exploring what it meant to be second generation Irish, what it meant to be born in England of Irish parents and how they kind of negotiated that issue. And I suppose the name on the list that might surprise people there is Morrissey and Johnny Marr. They're not necessarily artists you would associate with Ireland. No, that's true. And what I try to argue in the book is that rather than being sort of Ireland Irish musicians, they're very much Manchester Irish or Irish and England musicians. Unlike Shane McGowan in the Pogues and Kevin Rowland in Dexys, who kind of overtly engaged their Irishness, Morrissey and Marr were a bit more oblique about it. Morrissey originally agreed to an interview and then unfortunately pulled out. But Johnny Marr gave a very long and thoughtful interview One of the things that he felt related to Irishness as part of the Smiths was when he was writing music for the Smiths, he would almost try to channel the house parties in his parents' house when he was a child in the mid-1960s. He said that's the reason why so many Smith songs are in waltz time, because they're borrowing from these kind of waltz time folk songs. And there's a very famous Smith song called Please, 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 Let Me Get What I Want, which when Johnny Marr wrote it, it was called The Irish Waltz. And it was written very much as an echo or as a kind of homage to that Irish migrant experience. And then I suppose what Morrissey has said is that his lyrics are, for the Smiths at least, were written from the point of view of a kind of outsider who never really felt like he belonged. So there's kind of displaced echoes of that Irish migrant experience in the Smiths, I think. And what kind of period of time are you talking here? What's interesting is that there was a huge wave of Irish migration to Britain well, in the 50s and 60s, in the post-war period, about a million Irish migrants. They collectively gave birth to about two million people who were of immediate Irish descent who came of age then in the late 70s, early 80s. So around the time of punk. So John Lydon would be another example of that. Someone born in London of Irish parents who's very much shares that sensibility. But then it's really in the 1980s that that generation come to the forefront of popular music. So it's people like Boy George would be another one, obviously Kevin Rowland, Morrissey and Marr, the Smiths, and then later on, of course, Oasis in, in the mid-90s. So there's a sort of long lineage of those musicians who seem to find themselves very much at the forefront of British popular music as kind of important figures. 
And it sounds like uh, Morrissey and Johnny, Ma- well, Johnny Marr, anyway, from what you said, had given it a lot of thought. But how conscious were the others of that role, of that Irishness? What Johnny said to me kind of very openly was that he was the most engaged in that issue of all of the Smiths. His parents were from Kildare. There's a Smiths record called Hatful of Hollow. If I'm allowed to say this, it's their best record, even though it's a conflict. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> yeah, academics aren't allowed to say things like that normally, but it is. And at the end of that album is the song, Please, 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 Let Me Get What I Want, which he wrote as the Irish Waltz, and it finishes with this mandolin solo. But in the vinyl runoff group, a word appears, and that word is era, the Irish word for Ireland. And Johnny Marr insisted on putting that there. So are these kind of oblique echoes? So I think Johnny was kind of most engaged in it, and Morrissey perhaps less so, but very much saw himself as a sort of modern-day Oscar Wilde. When the Smiths played in Ireland, rather than singing England is mine and it owes me a living, he would sing Ireland is mine. He has an Irish passport as well as, I think, a British one. And, of course, eventually Morrissey wrote the song Irish Blood, English Heart, from which my book took its title. And a lot of those artists are still writing and performing music, Boy George, Oasis, Johnny Marr. Can you still feel that influence, hear it? I think music is influenced by lots of different kind of sources. One of the things that Johnny Marr said, I'm focusing on him a lot, and I did speak to lots of other musicians, one of the things he said is that he very much tried to reimagine and take himself back to his childhood in Manchester at these these house parties with this large Irish community to try and channel the ambience, not how it sounded, but how it felt. That's what he was seeking to achieve musically. And in the end, he said it became sort of too intense for him. It was too much kind of personally. So he, he found other ways of creating. The fact that Morrissey in his more recent solo career has sung about this suggests it is still an issue. I think the point is though, it's a place of ambivalence in which these musicians sometimes feel Irish, sometimes feel English, sometimes feel both, sometimes feel neither. Identity is, of course, fluid, changing, dynamic. But my argument in the book was no one has attended to this particular issue of these musicians' lives and work. And actually, it plays a hugely important role in their lives and work. What about the listeners? What about the fans? Do you think they heard it? Do you think they recognised it? Obviously, in in the case of the Pogues, where the Pogues kind of sound Irish, people are aware of that. In a way, the odd thing with the Pogues is people might have assumed they were from Ireland, whereas, in fact, Shane and Cotter Reardon and other key members were effectively London Irish. And in the case of Dex's, people would have thought about it because he listed Irish authors' names in songs. And the big album Tour AA with Come On Eileen has a very distinctly kind of Celtic feel to it. I think in the case of the Smiths, what's interesting is that they use their outsiderness, partly as people of Irish descent, to connect with other outsiders. So it was a kind of progressive move to connect with outsiders of all kinds of stripes. Music is good at creating borders and saying this is who we are, but music is also good at constructing trajectories across borders. And I think the Smiths were very much about that. Do you think there was a boldness to it as well? I mean, was it quite dangerous in a way? Because this was a difficult political period. There wasn't maybe an awful lot of pro-Irish sentiment in England. That's very true. Kevin Rowland, actually, when he decided to make Tour AA, was told by his, I mean, he told me this, his management advised him against producing work that sounded Irish or identified as Irish. Morrissey and Ma both experienced anti-Irish prejudice as children. 
And so, yeah, I think they were wary of, of announcing it publicly. So you're right, it was a very difficult time. It was a time when to announce Irish ethnicity would, could often be misunderstood as a kind of overtly political gesture at a time, of course, when the troubles were very much live. And what about their influence today? Can you hear it in other artists? Yeah, I think I can, actually. Probably, the, the I mean, the Smiths' influence has endured all sorts of indie bands from the 90s, 2000s and beyond. Shane is still recognised as a hugely important songwriter. The Libertines, Pete Doherty, was very much uh, inspired by Shane McGowan. And Dexes are still seen as a very kind of cool, hip band. So I think they have endured, yes. Is there an equivalent today of artists who are filtering in music from a different culture in, in such numbers that it's, you know, it's, it's influential on the music scene? I suppose I'd say two things in relation to In the Irish context, you could argue that someone like Ed Sheeran, for example, whose parents are second-generation Irish, has drawn on Irish influence in his music, but it's a much more palatable sort of listen, if I can put it that way. And in a way, that perhaps reflects the changing place of the Irish in Britain, whereas once there were, in the words of a book written at the time, a suspect community. To be Irish in Britain now is a much easier accommodation, so I think maybe that place has been taken by other groups socially. The second part of my answer is, I think multi-ethnicity is very much part of all forms of popular music now. It's absorbed everywhere and in all places. And it's become unremarkable in a good way. And how do you look back on the writing of that book now? I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm incredibly jealous. You got to speak to some people who are icons now, absolute music legends. I did. I mean, I thought about the book for a very long time and I planned it and I researched it. I mean, I read every single interview they'd ever given. I found radio, television, print interviews. I spoke to the musicians themselves. I did all the research on the kind of sociology and history of the Irish in Britain. It was a huge privilege to speak to the musicians. And what's interesting about that is it's quite difficult to speak to fairly well-known musicians. I mean, Kevin Rowland, certainly at the time, was very reluctant to give interviews to anybody. And yet on this issue, Johnny Marr, Kevin Rowland, Shane McGowan, all these people said instantly, this is a hugely important issue. We definitely want to speak about it. And it was a huge privilege to speak to them. And also what they said to me changed a lot of my thinking as well. So, for example, I think both Johnny Marr and Kevin Rowland spoke about the kind of ambivalence of their upbringing and the fact that their work could only have taken place in England. It's a story about Irish migrants, but it's also a story about England as well and the England of those post-war decades affording these musicians a kind of opportunity and an environment in which they could thrive. And Irish Blood, English Heart, Second Generation Irish Musicians in England by Sean Campbell is published by Cork University Press. And you can find out more about the Cambridge Festival at festival.com.ac.uk. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Peter James Bowman about his book, The First Celebrities, Five Regency Portraits, published by Amberley. Well, James, what's next for you? What I'm working on at the moment is a compilation of anecdotes from the same period, from the Regency period, arranged by theme. There's a section on childhood and youth, a section on the Navy, acting and the theatre, lawyers, crime and punishment, sickness and death, love and marriage, everything you can imagine. And I'd like to have an introductory section on how anecdotes worked in those days, how they reveal the period, and then just have 
an arrangement of, of anecdotes by theme, as I've said. So it's not a book that I've written, but it's a book that I've put together. That's fascinating. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm actually reading two things. One is a biography of a diplomat called Hugh Elliot, who had his career in the late 18th century. The other thing which I've just started is called Scandal and Survival or some, something like that. And it's about, I can't quite think of the title, I haven't got it with me. And it's about a half British, half Indian girl who grew up in Scotland and said that the female teachers who were running the school that she attended were lesbians and there was a court case about that. So it's a, it's a story of, of race and of sexuality, sexual orientation and the culture of that time. Now, I've only just started that book. I've only read about 20 pages of it. It's by an author called Francis Singh and I can't quite think of the title, unfortunately. It's shaping up well, so I've got these two books on the go. Thank you, James. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show featured guest is Ellie Seymour talking about her Royal Station Master's Daughters series of books. We'll also hear from Joanne Byrne on her novel, The Hemlock Cure, based on the true story of the plague village of Eam. And Katie Ford will be chatting about her latest romantic novel, A Wedding in Provence. But we'll sign out now, James, with your last choice of music, which is from Bellini's opera La Somnambula. Why this one? This is my favourite opera. Bellini is my favourite composer. Like the other two pieces, it was first performed in this period in Britain. It was performed in 1831 at the King's Theatre and it immediately became a staple of the operatic stage uh, and has remained so ever since. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.